His name is John Daly. Now, I know that name's not familiar to all of us, but if you happen to follow the world of professional golf, you'll remember his story, and probably you remember it well. In 1991, John came out of nowhere, seemingly, to win the PGA Championship, a feat accomplished by really, really few people. Uh, 1995, he captured the Open Championship. Again, few golfers ever achieve this feat. But what gave him an advantage, if you watched him play, was his incredible drives off the green. In fact, in 1997, he became the first PGA Tour player to average, listen to this, average more than 300 yards per drive over the course of an entire season. Now, I, I don't know if I get my drives to go three feet. It's a, a feet. Now, off the course, things were different. The direction that John was driving was nothing short of perilous. You know, as, as spectators, you get glimpses sometimes of what was going on in his personal life. Um, you, you would remember that, huh, here's a guy, he's a professional golfer, and he's smoking cigarettes on a golf course. You know, professional athletes, you would think to yourself, should know better than that. But, but we didn't know that cigarettes were really just the tip of the iceberg. Behind the scenes, John Daly's life was imploding. Behind the curtain of his life, alcohol was at work, slowly stealing away everything that mattered to him. Alcohol began to cost him tournaments. Uh, he was suspended often for his behavior. In 1997, he got the shakes from alcohol so badly that he withdrew. He had to actually withdraw from the U.S. Open. It cost him a relationship with a coach who he held in high regard. I remember Butch Harmon, great coach, quit. Quit coaching daily in 2008. He stated that the most important thing in John's life is getting drunk. Daly's addiction also spilled over into his marriages. He's been married three times, uh, charged with the assault of his second wife, Sherry Miller. Gambling followed. Recently, Daly revealed that over the course of his lifetime, he's probably lost somewhere between 50 and 60 million dollars gambling. And for, and for me, all of this just raises a question for, for people who care about people. The question is, you know, when, when will someone like John hit rock bottom? Or let's ask it this way, will he? I want to welcome you to God's Size Living today. You know, over the last few weeks, we've been making our way through a prayer that Daniel prays at a critical point in Israel's history. For years, Israel has lived in slavery. Daniel's prayer acknowledges this, but it points, it points to the thing that got Israel into trouble in the first place, namely the refusal to listen to God, the refusal to acknowledge that God is God and we're not. So here in this prayer, Daniel is asking a question. Is Israel ready? Is there a willingness now to listen? Is there a willingness to change? Pointedly, has Israel hit rock bottom? As we look at verse 13 in Daniel's prayer, I, I want to recognize with you that there's a good chance that everyone tuning in today has been there. We've all been in that place where We've been watching someone we care about or someone that we love just self-implode. I mean, blow themselves up. It could be an addiction that's stealing their life away. It could be a bad relationship that they just won't let go of. It could be a behavior that they just will not give up. They're, they're in trouble. 
I mean capital T trouble. We watch them and we keep telling ourselves this. This is it. This has to be it. This has to be that, that point where they're going to change, where they're going to turn around, where they're going to listen. And then you know what? And I, know, I know you know what. The person that we love does not give up. They do not come to a place where they're ready to listen. They do not desire change. In fact, they become more stubborn and more locked in. And all the while, we keep asking ourselves the question, so when will they hit rock bottom? today's episode, I really want to look at three questions. So what does it mean, uh, this phrase, rock bottom? What does it mean for a person to hit rock bottom? Second question, why does it take so many people so long to get there? There's people in your mind already today that you're thinking about and, and you've been praying over and you've been caring for and you've been pouring into and they just haven't gotten there. Why does it take so long? Third question, what does this say about us? What does it say about our human capacity for homeostasis, for just retaining what we want to hold on to, even in the midst of sin and trouble. So as we begin, I want to tell you one of the things that started me thinking about our topic today was an article I read in Psychology Today written by Peg Connor. If you want to read the article, it's in May 2014. The, the article is titled, What's Wrong with Rock Bottom? It's a fascinating article. So, so what Connor is observing is the fact that this phrase, hitting rock bottom, actually originated, I didn't know this, with Alcoholics Anonymous. That, that's where it started. It's been around a long time. She questions, however, Connor questions the value of the phrase. I've always thought, yeah, that's a great phrase, uh, hitting rock bottom. It kind of communicates what you want to have happen in a person. But, but here's her thought. She says, um, the idea of rock bottom is sometimes, and, and I, I do find this paradoxical, is sometimes, she says, actually used by addicts to avoid change. Think about that. So what Connor is pointing to is individuals who might have substance abuse, uh, they've come to her for counseling, and she raises questions for them about what direction is needed in their, their lives. And as she does, the addict might actually use this fray, phrase in a way that suggests they're not there. In other words, alcohol has become highly destructive in their lives or drugs or gambling or fill in the blank. But instead of recognizing the level of destruction that exists, the addict will simply say, well, at least I'm not as bad off as so-and-so or, well, I don't feel like I've hit rock bottom yet. So in place of the term rock bottom, Connor suggests that the idea of a misery scale be developed. What she's suggesting is tied to the idea that each one of us has a different capacity for misery. What I might be able to endure might make another person utterly miserable and vice versa. The idea of a misery scale suggests that I will not make a change in my life until I become miserable enough to do it. And for each one of us, there's a tipping point on a scale wherein we know that we just cannot stay where we are and we're just too miserable. Something has to change. Change has to happen. So here, here's my thinking on this. What I, what I find right about Connor's article is the reality that the idea of rock bottom, it, it is subjective, which is what makes it so difficult to measure or observe. When someone we love is on a self-destructive course, 
we find ourselves wondering how, how much more misery will it take? Can, can they really go any further? We want to believe that the person is there, that they, they've dropped down as far as a person can go. Yeah, we want to believe that. We want, we want to believe they're ready to see the light. Hey, you're going to turn around. But are they? You know what? We don't know. We don't know because rock bottom is subjective. It's different for each person. It's what I like about Connor's article. When someone is spiraling down in life, maybe we ought to, ought to ask ourselves a different question. Not have they hit rock bottom, but where are they on the misery scale right now? Have they reached that point where the scale has tipped, where they finally say, I'm so miserable, something has to give, or are they just kind of climbing, recognizing that even a misery scale is going to be subjective. That's what I like about her article. But I also find something missing in her thinking. There's something absent. In fact, in the therapeutic world of psychology as a whole, outside of biblical Christianity, you know what's missing? The presence of the supernatural. I've always been a big believer of the idea that God, through the fields or disciplines of psychology and sociology, He's uncovered a great deal of truth that, that actually is helpful for us, his creation. But I'm also always aware of the limitations of psychology. I'm talking about non-Christian psychology, psychology that's outside of the realm of Christianity. Psychology apart from a biblical word. It, it can't treat a whole person. And it can't because it's absent of a critical part of our lives. It's absent of the spirit and we're not. God has created each one of us with living souls. And I believe that when we talk about rock bottom or a misery scale, we need to think at a level that is supernatural versus simple behavior. God's not interested in just changing what we do in life. He's interested in changing who we are in relationship with himself. I'm going to say that again. Think about this. God is not simply interested in changing what we do in life. That's behavior. I, I have a drinking problem. I have a gambling problem. I have a pornography problem. I have a gossip problem. I have a name. Just fill in the blank. It's what you're doing. God says, I'm not, I'm not simply interested in changing that. If all I change is your behavior, that, that's not enough. What he's interested in is changing who we are in relationship with himself. And I think that's what I find helpful about Daniel's prayer as it stands before us today. I want you to remember this with me. Dan Daniel is, as, as he prays this prayer, standing before God as a representative of Israel. They've, they've reached this moment in history that's just critical. For 70 years, Israel's lived as slaves in Babylon. And today, God is setting them free. He's returning the nation of Jerusalem to their home. And what stands before them are two questions. Number one, what is it that caused Israel to fall in the first place? What, what caused them to have to spend these 70 years in slavery? Why for the past 70 years has God been disciplining these people? Israel needs to think about that. Why? Well, it's the second question. What's going to keep you from returning to the same sin that brought you into slavery in the first place? And for me, hitting rock bottom means not just, okay, I'm miserable enough to change, but can I make a change that will allow me to move forward in such a way that I never go 
back. All right, in answering these questions, Daniel, he raises up this section of this great prayer. And I want you to pay attention to his words. I'm just going to read verse 13. And as we do, Lord, I'm just going to ask that you give us your direction, your wisdom. Help us hear in these words what you want us to hear today, that you're a God supernaturally at work within us. All right, let's, let's read the verse. This is verse 13. It reads, quote, As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. This is, again, this is Daniel speaking on behalf of Israel. All this calamity has come upon us. Yet, we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God. So this, this misery's come, calamity's come. But have we stopped and said, Lord, we, we need you? No. Listen to the rest of the verse. We have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. There's two parts of that. Uh, what he's saying, Daniel is saying, uh, not, only, not only do we need to turn away from <clears throat> what's going on, but we need to turn towards your truth. What's going to keep us from going back? It's not our willpower. It's not, <clears throat> hey, I'm part of this accountability group. All important, yes. But you know what? If you're not working that in me, God, I'll go back. And so, Lord, let your truth, that is your word, be that tool through which you're constantly holding on to me and moving me away from and toward relationship with you. Now, again, this is just one verse, but there's some powerful thoughts connected to it. Let's walk through them. What has caused Israel to enter into slavery? It's not just their sin, but it's the fact that when confronted with their sin, they refuse to listen. Now, you know what that sounds like to me? An addict. You confront them with their sin. Hey, this is what's going on. I did not do that. I am not doing that. I'm fine. I just refuse to listen. I don't want to hear the truth. Second thing, I want you to notice this is important. Not only has Israel not listened to God as he confronts their sin, I mean, they're far away from rock bottom. But in rejecting God's word, truth, they refuse relationship with God. I hope we see that. Now, some of, some of you might say, well, now, wait a minute, Pastor Luke. I, I don't... I don't see anything about relationship in this verse, but it's here. It's right here in front of us. You know where it is? It's in the word turn. Listen again. We have not entreated the favor or grace of our Lord God turning from our sin. I, I find this interesting because, listen to this, the word for turn, as it's used here in the Hebrew scripture, is the word shuv, S-H-U-B. You just say shuv now. Guess what? In the Hebrew language, this word is highly relational. Here's what it means. It means to turn back to someone relationally. Uh, just think, just think of, of a, a husband and a wife, and they've been at odds with one another. And they finally reach this point where he and she together say, you know what, we need to be done with this. We're, we're miserable. We really love each other. And they, they make a new commitment, and they turn back towards one another. It's about relationship. Biblically, Picture the prodigal son. He's cursed the father. He's spent his inheritance. He's refused to listen. He's far away from rock bottom until when? Until the Holy Spirit comes and does something that psychology cannot do. Until the Holy Spirit comes and takes hold of the prodigal son's heart and says, it's time. It's time to come home. And in that moment, the son's heart breaks. And with tears, 
he returns. He's afraid. He's afraid of what he might encounter. But what does he uncover? He discovers a father's never-ending love for him. I think if we can get that picture in our heads, we discover the difference between what psychology means when it talks about rock bottom and what the Bible means. You see, in the scriptures, rock bottom is a place where we discover both the horror of who we are and the grace of God. It's a place where our hearts are broken as we recognize how far away from the Father we've come, yet it's also that place where we discover that no matter how far I have run, the Spirit has kept up the whole time. He has, as promised, never abandoned us or given up on us. Said he's present, taking us by the hand and saying, son, it's time to come home. All of this happens, not at a superficial or behavior level, but at the level of our souls. It's when we hit rock bottom that we discover the rock at our bottom the rock of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the promises that he has made to us. You know, as I record this, I'm thinking uh, about a young lady. Her story will never leave me. Uh, initially, I met her through her parents. They reached out because they were at rock bottom. Uh, they had had to, to tell her she could not live with them any longer. Uh, she was a meth addict, and she would steal their credit card. She would steal property and sell it. Uh, they, they just, they couldn't, legally, they just could not afford, they couldn't have her at home. I met her at a coffee shop, and I'll never forget this. I bought her a sandwich. Uh, it's one of these, you know, Subway kind of sandwiches. They cut it in half for you. We sat down at a table. I'm just meeting her. First day to meet her, and she says, can I, can I uh, ask you a question? I said, yeah. And she looked at me, and she says, this sandwich you bought for me, is it mine? I said, it's all yours, the whole sandwich. Uh, she said, would you mind if I give half of it to that guy over there? And she looked over at this guy who was a, a homeless man, and she wanted to give it to her. And I knew, I knew in that moment, I just knew, I went, you know what? She's a mess. She's caught up in meth, but there's a God inside of her. Uh, during the course of not just that meeting, but several after it, I invited her. I said, you know what? I'm here not to judge you, condemn you. I'm here to tell you that there's a God, there's a Father waiting at home for you. And I invited her to get help. She just wasn't ready. She, she wasn't on the misery scale ready. You know what? It took two years, two years before one day she called me and she was in a mess. And I remember stepping back into her life and saying, we're here to help. I, I'd love to get you to the center. They can do it an intake and, and you, you can begin that journey. And she said, I, I think I'm there. I, there's nowhere for me to go. And you know what? She she got help. And if I can just say it this way, simply God brought her home, um, not her heavenly home, but he brought her back home to himself, back into a relationship. She ended up getting married and uh, is today actually doing well. I share a story for a reason. So I'm just wondering if there's a place in your life where you've not yet come to rock bottom. I, I don't mean by that that you're absent of God in your life. Certainly, he's not absent from you. Now, what I'm asking is, is there a place in your life where you are, and maybe you've been for a while, traveling down a road that is taking you, as did the road of the prodigal, away from God? You hear God calling, come home, but you're not ready. Instead, you continue to pursue a road that can only lead to pain. 
Would, would you this week just ponder that question? Is it possible that the Spirit is taking you? Is he saying, it's time. It's time to come home. Secondly, I, I'm just wondering where you might be afraid. And I think the prodigal son was. He was afraid. I've gone too far. God can't reach me. He would never have me back. The door's shut. It's too late. And I know this, that the enemy of our soul wants you to believe that, that there is no turning back, not for you. Maybe for other people, not for you. You've gone too far. Are you afraid? God doesn't want you to be. There is no too far. God wants you home. And last, I'm wondering when. When will you allow the Spirit to just push that fear aside, take your hand, and lead you back into a whole and healthy relationship with the one who made your soul and who desires to live with you for eternity. Today, my prayer for you is that when you hit rock bottom, when the tipping point happens on the misery scale, you'll find there the rock, the rock upon which so many have found their standing, the rock of Jesus Christ. Well, that's it for, for this week. I, I thank you for joining me. You know that I'm praying for you and your families. I'm asking you to pray for me and, and my family. Um, we'll come back together again next week. This has been an awesome journey through, through Daniel's prayer. Let me just say until next time we meet, have a God-sized week. <music>